Welcome to episode 64 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. A few weeks ago, I had a great discussion with Hagen Ruff, co-founder and CEO of Chava Energy and Chava Wind, about the exciting technology Vertical Access Wind Turbines. But before we get to the podcast, I'd like to acknowledge the nation's pain, sadness, and frustration in the face of the murders of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Ahmed Arbery in Brunswick, Brianna Taylor in Louisville, Sean Reed in Indianapolis, and Tony McDade in Tallahassee. Like you and your families, I am shocked at the current acts of police brutality across the country, and I am discussing the underlying decades of daily acts of racism and violence with my friends and family to better understand what's happening. For all the names that we know, there are still countless victims throughout our country's history whose names and experiences were erased. If you're able, please join me in donating to Black Lives Matter and seeking out other ways to make this country as equal as we want it to be. Hagen's company, Chava Wind, is focused on creating harmony with nature through both the preservation of natural resources and preservation of the natural beauty and aesthetic dignity in our everyday environments. Until now, vertical access wind turbines have been considered structurally challenging, unreliable, and of lower efficiency. However, with the latest advances in composite materials and fabrication methods, Chava has overcome those key challenges and achieved a highly efficient, robust, leaf-like design at lower cost and high structural reliability. Although Hagen spent most of his professional career as an executive and entrepreneur in management consulting, IT services, and business intelligence, he has always maintained a passion for science and engineering, especially in the field of energy technologies. After his company was acquired by Sapient Corporation in 2005, he launched and funded an energy technology research company, Chava, to conduct research in new energy technologies that go beyond conventional paradigms. In co-founding Chava Wind, Hagen's goal is to disrupt the strategic distribution market for both enterprise and single customer green wind power energy solutions. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat. I'm here with Hagen Ruff. He's the co-founder and CEO of both Chava Wind and Chava Energy. Hagen, welcome to the Climate Champions. Glad to be here, Lee. When it comes to climate change, what was your motivating moment where you decided you had to get engaged? I don't think for me it was like a single moment that triggered that whole career for me. I mean, it was a gradual process. I've always been fascinating with energy and how to harvest energy, how to convert energy from one form to the other. Even as a child, I read about the Nikola Tesla theories, not Tesla motors, but Nikola Tesla. And then as a student, I did my thesis in mechanical engineering when I graduated in Germany on hydrogen engines. So I already had this 
passion for, hey, there must be something different to do than just burning fossil fuels. Fossil fuels have grown over hundreds of millions of years. We're kind of taking them down over a few hundred years, if even. And there's just so much more valuable things to do other than basically blowing the carbon dioxide from combustion into the atmosphere, which does all kinds of other wacky things. And of course, you know, I'm not really in the business of the whole movement or career communicator on climate change. I see my role with my background and my passion more sort of on the energy side. What can we do to invent to get to different energy forms that will eventually reduce or eliminate the need for fossil fuels? And again, you know, fossil fuels to me is we're glad we have them. We're glad we used to have them. For some people in today's age of sort of alternative facts, fossil fuels is kind of the savior. It creates all those jobs and it's the lifeline of America. And if we give that up, then I mean, they believe if you look at right wing websites that the economy will break down without any understanding that alternative forms of energy create actually more jobs. And those are American jobs as well, where, you know, if you service wind turbines, if you install wind turbines, if you do the same thing with solar and other forms of renewables, those are all American jobs. And those are higher qualified jobs, they're better paying jobs, they're healthier jobs, and also those are more sustainable jobs in the long run. So the whole economy, I mean, I'm convinced, will converge to the better even of the current forms of energy right of alternative fuels and energy but to me it's the whole conception that we've always had that renewable energies that are clean going away from fossil fuels is going to cost us dearly it's going to cost a lot of money and i remember the times when i still lived in california about 20 years ago when we were able to sign up for our electricity bill with uh, sdg&e pay a few cents extra per kilowatt hour, you get 75% renewables, pay that much extra, you get 100% renewables. But it was kind of like a little abstract. You never knew where's the money going to. And a lot of people just did it to basically out of calming their conscience and doing something, but it wasn't really anything tangible. But this conception remained that the transition to renewables will cost a lot of money and fossil fuels are cheap, basically. And there is some truth to it, to what we've experienced so far. But if you take all the cost of, you know, healthcare and all the contamination of water and air, and I'm not just talking about carbon dioxide, which people associate with climate change, but it's basically all the pollutants that we blow in the air. If you take the whole cost of society conservation, fossil fuels are already more expensive than where we are today with renewables and even nuclear power. Nuclear power has, in my mind, I grew up in Europe, always been associated with danger, with hazard, with it's it's something you don't want, and it's just plainly dangerous. I mean, starting with Harrisburg, the Three Mile Island, I was a teenager at the time, and then a few years later, Chernobyl happened, which affected us in Germany directly with the fallout and radioactivity. And so nuclear was always perceived as something you got to get rid of. And Germany obviously has a path not to get rid of it. But now the, the perception as well that the latest generation of nuclear power plants, they seem to be safe. We haven't had an accident until Fukushima happened, of course. But that was an old plant. It was an old plant, exactly. So nuclear is controversial. Let's put it that way. I mean, here in Florida, we live off nuclear. We're adding on to the capacity on Turkey Point uh, in South Florida. So it is accepted by the people here that we live within miles of a nuclear power plant and the dangers associated with that. People are accepting it, even though most of the reactors are quite old. 
nuclear, though, if you look at a complete new construction of a nuclear power plant and you look at the lifetime cost, the LCOE, which is the levelized cost of energy, basically, over the lifespan of that nuclear power plant, including all the costs associated with decontaminating, building it back, and storing nuclear elements and whatever thereafter, it's already quite more expensive than wind farms. Now, of course, you can't put wind farms everywhere. Florida, for example, doesn't have enough winds, and we don't have the grid capacity to take the tornado out of the Midwest, the windy areas of the U.S., and transport all that wind power over to other areas. Just thinking about wind is now less expensive than nuclear, that is a new concept, you know, and it only applies to new, newly built nuclear power plants. If you look at written off plants that are 30 years old, we just have the maintenance costs, and basically you're just riding them along till they leave their end of life and then extending it further, which a lot of nuclear power plant operators do, then nuclear is very cheap. And obviously it's climate neutral, which is a big advantage. But I personally, I'm not a big fan of nuclear power. I think there are still inherent dangers. I believe hopefully in the next few decades, there will be nuclear fusion available, which basically is a much easier to I would say emergency handle technology than nuclear fission, where, you know, if a chain reaction gets out of control, it will lead into disaster, basically. Just inherently by the process, it's more dangerous than fusion if we ever manage to control that process. Until then, I think we have solar, we have wind, we have other alternatives. My fascination always has been with those sort of smaller technologies that promise that eventually people can convert their own energy need with small devices, just in the sense of what the dreams of Nikola Tesla were back 100 years ago. Energy obviously cannot be generated or destroyed. It can only be converted from one form into the other. And there has been many researchers in the world since, and I've been funding myself quite a few projects, I've been fascinated with that, where this whole concept of, well, the transition to climate neutral energy is going to cost a lot of money is reverse, where those technologies would actually break down the cost of energy. I mean, it would reduce it by multiples. Can you talk about why climate change mitigation is personal to you? I think as many of your candidates have said before, and it applies to me by factor five, I do have five children. So of course, you're thinking about their future. I think my wake up moment, and it goes back to your first question about climate change, was in 2003, that was this heat record in Europe. And I already lived in California at the time. And you read in the news, well, between 30 and 50,000 people in Europe died from heat. And that was kind of, wow, that must be a print error. That just can't be true. And I grew up in Europe, never had anything like that. And apparently it was a 500-year heat record at that time. And it's been superseded since, but, you know, measures have been taken to uh, get people out of the danger zone. But that kind of triggered with me. And then, of course, in a few years later, Al Gore came out with all his explanations and theories. That, to me, made me more active and trying to do something about carbon dioxide. And, of course, you read, on the other hand, the climate change deniers, they, they have huge websites with all kinds of made-up evidence that carbon dioxide doesn't do anything to the environment. And we had climate cycles in the past, and humans can't even influence it. I just look at the numbers. And about 120, 150 years ago, before the Industrial Revolution really kicked into a contribution of carbon dioxide, we had about 285 ppm parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Now we're at over 400 in such a really short period of time. If you look at previous cycles, 
of climate change. We had ice ages, we had really warm periods, but they went over tens of thousands of years. It's not that climate changed so quickly or the composition of the atmosphere basically changed within 100 years. So if you just look at the total carbon content of the atmosphere, you're looking at the current emittance of carbon dioxide man-made, Yes, there is definitely an influence on any sites. People read about climate deniers and, well, it's a natural cycle. We can't do anything about it. It is not supported by any sensible science. When you meet somebody that is a climate denier that doesn't believe the facts, you just reeled off a whole bunch of facts to me and to our listeners. Does that work on climate deniers? If not, what do you do to try to convince them? I don't know if they're just telling me they're looking at it a different way, but it works on some people. On other people, it's completely hopeless. Over the last 10 years, we have diverged in this polarized society, right, where you're in one camp on the other, and it, it almost becomes a loyalty thing for some of the climate deniers that, hey, if I'm in this camp, I stay loyal, and whatever these guys tell me, it's fake news anyways, and they're lying, and they're making up stuff, and, and they're telling me stuff I don't understand, so they're lying. And they're going to stay in their camp no matter what. And there's a lot of similarity with political views nowadays, which is a totally different topic, but equally dangerous. But there's people in between. They read both theories. They read, they see, you know, that people are going out with their opinions on either side. And if you bring up good arguments and you show them good data, then I think their views can change. So I've seen both cases. And what's your go-to argument that tends to have the biggest impact on convincing somebody? Well, to me, it's the speed of how change is happening. The pure numbers of, if you're comparing the volume of air in the atmosphere and what's the part of carbon dioxide molecules that's in there and how much are we emitting every year with like over 7 billion people nowadays, that's very abstract and a lot of people can't follow those numbers because they're really big numbers. But if you look at what I said earlier, the timeline over which climate change has occurred naturally in natural cycles of the Earth and what we've been doing over the last 100 to 150 years and how we've accelerated that, I think that resonates with a lot of people. And that relates to man-made contributions to climate change. I think even climate deniers, they don't necessarily deny climate change in itself. What they're denying is that we can or we did anything to it. I'm going to change directions just a little bit. How has the pandemic changed your opinion about climate change and your role in it? The only change that you see is that people have a little more time thinking about it. I mean, they're all about their busy lives and all of a sudden you're home, you're locked in and you have time to think about stuff, time to read things. And maybe people are more open to discuss it and to hear other people's opinions. But in general, one thing that I've actually noticed from a science side, and this is not from a public perception side, from a public perception side, I have personally not seen a lot of change. Again, just a little bit of an attention thing because people have more time. But from a science perspective, you may have heard of this phenomena called global dimming, right, which actually slowing down climate change. And again, people, especially in the climate denier camp, they're confusing pollution with carbon dioxide, which really isn't polluting in that sense or poisonous to us. It just sort of changes the composition of the atmosphere and therefore contributes to global warming. But pollution is basically particles in the air, toxic particles in many cases that we're emitting from burning fossil fuels or other things. Yeah, pollution is bad too. It's just not, it doesn't stay with us for as long when you create it. 
That is true. And the thing is, pollution, though, has one positive effect on climate change such that it actually reflects the sunlight. So global dimming, and there's been measurements and studies about it, actually contributes to a slowing of global warming. So basically, all that dirt we're blowing up in the air somewhat reflects a portion of sunlight, therefore leaving less radiation down to Earth. And so studies have shown that there is a factor of maybe 10 to 20 percent of slowing global warming because of that factor. Now, we've seen a lot of city pictures with the COVID-19 crisis. And going back to this question right now, have I seen a change? Of course, it's delightful to see Delhi, where it's a crystal clear sky, or Beijing and other parts of the world where you typically just have this smog environment. But on the other hand, we may actually be accelerating global warming, luckily only temporarily, because plants will start up again and traffic will come back. It already is coming back now. But that was an interesting phenomenon to see. I mean, the air is clear. Of course, you can't just say because we had heat records in March and April that it was due to that. But it is certainly a factor that people have to be aware of. Global dimming, once we actually clean up the air, but we still continue to use fossil fuels, maybe in a cleaner way or in a way where we filter out pollutants, but we still let the carbon dioxide slip, we may actually be accelerating global warming. Hagen, you're bumming me out. I didn't understand that concept, and now I do. It makes sense. I'm going to have to look into it, but it, it's just another thing that will keep me up at night. Global <laughs> dimming. Can you tell me about Chava Wind and Chava Energy and what you do? Sure, sure. I'm going to go sequentially. I mean, again, I've been, I'm a mechanical engineer by background. I did thesis on hydrogen engine as a student when I graduated. But then I changed careers. We got to know each other when I was in the consulting business. You know, I did IT, managed large IT projects, and I set up my own company. So I was riding the wave. The 90s, which was the boom years of dot-com booms, and I was lucky to be in this wave, I'd have to say. So I didn't have much to do with engineering in that sense, but I always maintained that passion and interest during all those years. And then I set up my own company, EIS, and we were very successful in the BI space. We sold that company to a public outfit. We're relatively small, about $25 million annual revenue, and we sold it to a much larger company that was publicly listed. And then after my earnout was done three years into it, and I left the sapient who bought my company, I was financially independent at that time. Not filthy rich, but I was independent, let's put it that way. And I really want to go back to my passion, which was engineering and energy. And so I got into this space which is called the free energy space and you know i have to obviously put some caveats out the free energy space is spiked with lots of people that are delusional anywhere from delusional to point blank fraudsters and i paid my own less contribution to like some of those people and just being tapping into some of the initial traps but there is certainly a group of people that have really good intentions really good projects and really good science it's it's more than a lab stage but I got really fascinated with it. So I put quite a bit of money into projects worldwide. We had a group in Australia. I bought a lab facility close to Berlin in Germany. And we had some projects here in Florida. Then we had some projects in Washington State that I financed for years. And so it didn't yield into anything commercially scalable, which was a bit of a disappointment, of course. I think I initially ran into this a little bit too naive in terms of how 
quickly something on a lab scale that looks interesting. It could scale up into a commercial product if ever. And what it takes to even take a phenomenon that works in a lab to really develop and engineer a product and certify it. I kind of, at that time, again, probably my lack of engineering background or experience at all, made me a little bit naive in how quickly it can go. So a few millions of invested in my own money later. I obviously thought, hey, to continue financing that, we need to have a more tangible business model. We need to look at more proven technologies. And we had this opportunity coming from Japan for something innovative, but not completely out of the realm of current science, which is obviously technology. And so it was small wind, decentral, not mini turbines that you put on the roof of your house, but small wind up to like 25 kilowatts. And Japan, after Fukushima, had a dire need for more energy because they shut down all the nuclear power plants at the time. Some of them are back on, as you probably know. And they had those huge incentives in place for wind power, specifically for small decentral wind generation, which, according to the government, needed extra incentives. It was more desirable in the large, kind of intimidating wind turbines. Japan is very densely populated, and they, people don't want to live nearby like a large wind turbine. So deploying smaller decentral, the so-called point-of-use wind turbines was something they wanted to incentivize. And the market was predicted to be huge. The incentives were tremendous. I mean, 55 cents per kilowatt hour, speed in tariffs guaranteed by the government. So we were tasked by a group in Japan to look for a product that's certified, that's aesthetically pleasing. The Japanese didn't want a cluttered environment with like ugly looking propellers. And so they were looking specifically for vertical axis wind turbines, anything that's certified and reliable. And there just wasn't anything on the market. We did an extensive study and there was just tiny micro turbines that were useful but not for the purpose of larger scale energy production. And then beyond that, everything else was just experimental. So we decided at that time, well, let's develop our own. And we had a target market, which was Japan. And that's how we embarked on the product we've now developed through Java Wind. Again, it's a vertical axis wind turbine. It's still more of a niche market. Japan no longer has those incentives, but globally there's quite a few markets where product that could be used in off-grid mode it doesn't require like the big wind turbines a grid connection that basically creates power at the point of use directly for businesses or hotels or government buildings or small settlements and can work in conjunction with solar in a microgrid setting there's quite a few markets specifically on islands or in many regions of africa latin america southeast asia i mean there is quite a few markets our model is to basically get it through the final certification. We already passed all the certification testing, which was the biggest hurdle. That was a good success story so far. After the final certification is in, we'll license that technology to people who take it into manufacturing. We have manufacturing in place, but we'll license for them to manufacture at their own leisure in their own regions if they want, and then also take on the distribution, installation, maintenance, and support. So that's where we are with Chava Wind, we haven't completely abandoned all those free energy projects, those revolutionary projects that are quite controversial in science, but we put them on the back burner through Java Energy. I am getting a little bit re-involved these days in looking into some of the projects that are very interesting. I've actually been to a conference of people that present their cases in Holland last year, in December of last year, before the travel ban hit. I'm still following the scenes. I'm still in contact with a lot of people. 
but our focus is to get the final sort of certificate for the Chava wind turbine and then start licensing that product. We're in negotiations with quite a few groups right now. And so that's the main target. That's what I'm doing. That's what I feel is what I can do, what I can contribute to prevent basically additional carbon emissions in the atmosphere for now. You've talked a lot about your journey getting to where you are today. Is there anything you want to add? Again, to go from consulting, from IT projects back into engineering and energy, it's been a hard transition. Would I look back? Possibly. Sometimes I think, well, I could have built another IT company, probably could have built the second one, not just the 25 million, but 200 million. And, but on the other hand, energy was always my passion. So despite all the roadblocks I've experienced in the past, I still think it was worth it. So I don't think there's really anything to add. I mean, I've, I've always been a little competitive and and what I do, it started back as a teenager. I did motorcycle racing, and then I graduated from college quicker than anybody else. And so the thing for me to work in, a, when my company was bought out and then to build my career in consulting, working in a corporate environment, that just wasn't the thing for me. You were sitting next to people who said, well, we don't want large-scale projects that are hard to get. We want like the gradual, you know, you got to manage a P&L, you got to grow your business by 10% every year, those type of things. And that just wasn't exactly what I made of. As an entrepreneur, it's hard to go back in a corporate environment. And that's why a lot of acquisitions have a hard time succeeding when the principals, the entrepreneurs are basically retrofitted into a corporate environment that they're not directly part of. And so I experienced a similar thing as part of my career, but I'm happy to be in the energy field now. I've learned a lot over those last 12 years since I left IT, and I don't regret it. I don't regret it either. I started out developing code and found myself in the energy field and then found myself in renewable energy, climate change mitigation. It's much more fulfilling. It is, it is. It's so much more tangible. And I learned the hard way getting back into engineering and energy, but in IT, it's like, if you can dream it, you can build it, right? So there was always this thing as a consultant saying, hey, you know, you don't have to know more, but you just have to present it better than the others to make you a successful consultant, right? And again, you know, with coding, you can make anything you can think of happen after all. But with engineering, there's just those annoying roadblocks of sort of physical laws in your way that just things don't work out how you would dream them to work out for you sometimes. And so I've had to learn it the hard way that you can't just dream of something and make it happen. I paid dearly sometimes in the last 12 years on those energy projects, especially the free energy projects, the sort of science development projects that I funded, that things don't go so easily necessarily if they haven't been around yet. It's not like developing software code. I agree. I find that I'm overly optimistic in the world of engineering when there's a lot more risk than we're willing to acknowledge sometimes. But I do treasure my computer science days because they did give me the thought that I could do anything if given enough time and resources. That's right. So I still have that belief, and I think that belief keeps pushing me forward. Exactly. I exactly. I feel the same way. Now, you talked about losing millions of dollars which sounds like a setback to me. Do you want to dig into some of the hardships that you had during your career? I don't particularly like dwelling on setbacks, but I will talk about it. So, of course, and it relates to what we just said. You know, I was overly naive. Again, you dream it, you can make it. 
And I was in touch with all those people, and I visited like dozens and dozens of those inventors, right, of those technologies. And we set up the company as a network of developing that further. And I think I just, again, when those things didn't yield into immediate, scalable products, it was a disappointment. I mean, I have to say it took me a few years and again, a few million dollars. I wouldn't say I lost it. I mean, I invested that. That's how I tell myself I didn't lose it. I invested it in experience, right? And that experience hopefully <laughs> will help me in the future to do something with it, basically. And, and I will. Every setback is a learning opportunity, it, right? Exactly. And it didn't break my back, neither financially nor in any other way. But it was hard to digest because in the past, you feel invincible. Whatever you do, you make it a success. And then all of a sudden, you put your effort into those technologies and you can't get them just like some physical laws in the way there's some physics laws and some other road blocks in the way darn physics and those <laughs> damn laws and it was it was frustrating to me to learn those lessons but i still believe that there are lab phenomena out there that eventually can be scaled with probably a lot more effort and resources than i had originally dreamed of but i still think it is coming and it will so I asked you about setbacks. Let me turn it around and ask you to talk about the successes that you're most proud of. Right now, I mean, obviously, you always remember the current successes the most. And to successfully pass certification testing of that vertical axis wind turbine, which inherently by their principle has always been considered a big challenge. A lot of people in the wind industry, they still think, oh, these those verticals, they just, you can't get them to work. And we looked at the papers of Cindia Labs that was wind turbines with vertical axis were developed back in California in the late 70s and early 80s. And they had a lot of promise, but at that time, they didn't have the carbon composite materials that are needed to really make them work and other control mechanisms that we developed that are necessary to make them work, to control them. And so I'm actually proud that we got that thing passed through certification testing. And now we're in the, to get the actual certificate, we still have to get reconciliation of test data with uh, simulations, but we also have to get all our suppliers quality, like ISO 9000 quality certified, which will take a little time. But the major hurdle to get through this physical certification testing has been done successfully. I'm proud of that. That was a big challenge. And it was sort of my, that's my engineering success, right? I mean, all my successes in the past have been IT related. That's my, I finally got a hard success in engineering that I participated hands-on. I mean, I went out like in winter at minus 35 degrees to Iowa, where we, at the Iowa Lakes Community College, we did the certification testing and we worked outside, couldn't take your gloves off for more than two minutes and your skin would stick to the metal. And it was hard, but I enjoyed it. It was a very different experience for me than managing an IT project or managing an IT company. and I really enjoyed it, and we have now yielded a product that will be certified, and I, I'm happy about that. Can you talk about your vision for the future with regards to climate change? Where do you think the world is going next 20, 30, 40 years? That's the thing. I can only see a swift climate change if we make some technological breakthroughs that make alternative fuels less expensive than fossil fuels. And fossil fuels have always found a way to kind of ride the cycle. It's not a world market where you have supply and demand. It's controlled by conglomerates and cartels. And the consumer doesn't have a choice, right? So if you fill up your car, you can't just say, well, fuel is a little expensive today. Let me switch over to 
electricity or natural gas or solar power on my roof. It's just a car needs fuel, whether it's diesel or regular, it doesn't matter. But you can't just, when it gets more expensive, you have no choice. You still have to drive to work, right? And it's the same with lots of people with their heating systems. You buy a furnace for 20, 25 years, and because of price fluctuations, you can't just switch around from one burner to the other. Again, maybe in the future we can, but not at the moment with what's on the market. And so I'm still hoping that a technology breakthrough makes alternative energy technologies. And solar has gone a long way. I mean, if you look at what solar cost just 10 years ago, but, but when it started, the big boom 20 years ago in Germany, the rooftop incentives, I mean, it was terribly expensive. And even I invested in a school solar project in Massachusetts. And it was still four times more expensive back in 2011 when we completed that project than it would be today. Complete install costs. It's it's amazing how much that has come down and how much more competitive it is. And again, big wind with multi-megawatt wind turbines is now in the long run less expensive than a newly built nuclear power plant. So I think we've made big strides, but it's still the intermittency issues. You put solar on the roof. The project I finance is in Massachusetts, so we have great output in summer. But in winter, I mean, in dreary winter months with short days and possibly snow cover, you're producing next to nothing. So in northern climates, solar just doesn't do the job. And then wind is not always available where people live. Naturally, again, there's it's a niche market, what we do with small wind turbines. But classically, wind is not where people live. So most of the wind farms are further out, which makes a lot of sense. But we need the grid, of course. And, and again, we still have the intermittency. And we don't have a cost-efficient storage solution on the market yet. It's getting better year by year, but it will still take quite some time. Is it going to take so much time that we're not going to be able to get there in time? I don't think that any scientist, I mean, science shows what the predictions are of the climate models. Science shows what the carbon content in the atmosphere has been over the last 100 years or more. But to really take all factors into consideration and to really determine what's going to happen by the end of this century, where some people predict three and a half degrees Celsius increase, meaning the oceans will flood basically half of the coastal cities in the world. I mean, those are catastrophic scenarios, and it really depends on how quickly they settle in. And also, what's the feedback loop? So let's say we're taking out the emissions of carbon dioxide. How quickly does it take for ppms of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to normalize? Or do we have to develop technologies to actually convert carbon back into other forms of carbon chains, just the way we did it by burning it from one into the other? So there's a question of timing, right? Personally, I'm not sure. And there's so many different models. Some of them say we're pretty much host in 2050. Some other more optimistic models say, well, we have to at least 2100. But then again, once we have technologies that reduce our emissions drastically, how the atmosphere reacts and how quickly the current temperature change will be affected and reversed, that really is difficult for many science models to reliably predict. So we're in trouble, but you can't predict how, how in trouble we are. Exactly. All we can do right now is to reduce it. We know that, hey, by reducing it, we'll slow it down somewhat. But if a house is burning, you bring the water buckets, all you can do is help. You don't know whether you can save the house, whether you can get the people out alive or not. But all you do at this juncture, if you're on a chain of, of water buckets, you just keep shoveling. And so you contribute with what you can. And of course, I think our, our climate models will get better every year. 
but it's hard again. It's it's also hard to see how pollution and this global dimming phenomenon will kick in and how much it will actually contribute to accelerating global warming. And then what other events are coming, you know, there could be events in the ocean with methane that could accelerate the whole thing. There could be dying of forests like the Amazon, political things that we can't at this juncture influence directly only through movements. But I think forests and plants have a huge impact. So all depending on how those factors contribute will determine the, the time scale of what's going to happen to climate change and to the effects on cities, coastal cities, of those rising temperatures. Hagen, I feel like you're telling me, Lee, you have a lot to worry about, <laughs> but put that aside and take action because action will still be beneficial and it's all we really can do. Exactly. You can't just sit back and say, hey, there's nothing I can do. Disaster is going to happen no matter what. And that is just not the way I operate. I mean, I'm not sitting back and just let things happen. Some people think it's our fate. There's nothing we can do. I think differently. If there's anything you can do, do it. Even if you're not completely sure about how much of a contribution it will, as long as you're convinced there is a contribution, as small as it can be, do it. That's all we can do at this juncture. Yeah, I'll put my nerdy Klingon hat on and I'll say, we have to at least die with honor. We have to go fighting in battle. That's it, exactly. And again, I actually think that with new technologies, it will actually be an economic benefit to all of us as a society. The whole naysayers and you know people who think that climate change is something for the elitist liberals, if you listen to some of the right-wing media, if you listen to a sound bites, it's almost like, well, the rich Tesla driving elitists, they want to make money on us paying more for our energy. And that's just simply not factual. If you look at renewable energy technologies that could be less expensive to society down the road, especially as it relates to healthcare and other human suffering, it will benefit everybody, absolutely everybody. And of course, jobs and fossil fuels will convert or converge into other technologies. It's not that jobs get lost. It will create more jobs in those other fields than the ones we lose in oil. Because we're the biggest, I think it's fluctuating between us and Saudi Arabia, but we're one of the biggest producers of oil, of course, as an industry to protect. But we're still just producing about half of the oil that we're consuming ourselves, which means we're still importing from other countries. And there's still wealth in other countries we're basically sponsoring our fossil fuel industry so we've got to keep that in mind when we say well look at all those jobs we're going to lose as one of the biggest producers of oil we're still not self-sufficient in oil it's interesting you brought up oil because the next question i wanted to ask you was about the pandemic which has absolutely affected the price and amount of oil being used how do you think the pandemic has affected climate change in the big picture I think a temporary price drop, when we've seen that in 2009, when we had a temporary dip down to like $30 a barrel. Now we've been into negative territory, which that was unexpected, of course. But I think it's very temporary. I mean, as soon as the economy picks up again, as soon as people are driving with the production cuts, we'll see oil coming back quicker than we can imagine to the levels we've seen before the pandemic. So that's just a very temporary phenomenon. And it's not going to really, really make a long-term dent into the demand. In fact, there is a higher demand for electric cars now compared to combustion engines than there was before the pandemic. So maybe it's the people, again, being home, thinking about their life, thinking about what they can do. It may create more passion for contributing, which is my hope. I think 
factual evidence for that. We'll have to wait and see what really happens and to see what the market will do in the next couple of years in terms of people buying electric cars, people putting solar panels up and just changing their overall behavior in terms of maybe buying more fuel-efficient cars if they can't get an electric car if that's not feasible for them. But simple actions like that, which have been actually reversed. I mean, our fleet fuel economy has not really moved in the last 20 years significantly. That's kind of sad to see that we just enjoyed relatively cheap oil, although we had spikes in 2008 where oil was uh, 120 bucks a barrel temporarily. But people just don't think about it. And so maybe this crisis has induced a bit of critical thinking about what they can do and what they can contribute and maybe think about bigger causes than themselves. Are there any questions that you have for me? Well, first of all, I appreciate you having this forum. I think communication, awareness, it's a big factor in this whole equation. We got to make people aware. And the fact that a lot of people that don't believe in climate change are in their camp and never come out of it doesn't mean we can continue to communicate and convince the ones that are in between. And eventually it will become self-evident that what we do will have benefits for everybody, including economic benefits. So what you do, I appreciate. And if there's anything I can help with your platform, if there's anything I can do in the future, let me know. I appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you. And is there anything else you want to say? Not, not at this juncture. I think I guess I've spoken enough now. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. You are a climate <laughs> champion, to put it mild. You read about Tesla and energy as a child. Economical alternative fuels, you think they're attainable. Clean energy that is sustainable. People think that it costs more. That's wrong, and it's not funny, because clean energy can save us a lot of money. One scary <laughs> thought that I got from him is about the global dim. Technology that you see, it might seem fab, but it's hard to make it real just because it works in a lab. You were in Iowa. You got certified. It's a success that you love, but you couldn't take your hand out of your glove. You invested a lot in Chava Energy because it was energy that would be free. You passed up an opportunity to cash in because you wanted to follow your passion. I want to thank you for helping me with LCOE. You defined it as the levelized cost of energy. <laughs> Man, I, I forgot about that talent of yours. I remember now. Yeah, man. Man, everything you just, you made it up ad hoc. That's very impressive. Hagen mentioned that the pandemic side effect of clear skies, which I thought was 100% good news, reduces global dimming. And I said I would look it up, and I did. So, of course, I'm sleeping a little less now. As Hagen said, the reduction of atmospheric pollutants such as sulfate aerosols, which is good for breathing, by the way, allows more irradiance, basically sun power, increasing the warming of the earth. I guess the good news is that we'll soon start to pollute the skies again and cool the earth back down a bit. But as Hagen pointed out, as we transition to clean energy to mitigate climate change, 
We'll be restoring clean skies and enabling the true level of climate change by lowering particulate levels. One last thought on this, there is consideration being given to leveraging global dimming to mitigate climate change by using balloons, artillery, and or aircraft to deposit stratospheric aerosols every one to four years into our stratosphere to increase the global dimming effect, basically mimicking the effect of a volcano eruption, which has been shown to cool the Earth. However, other side effects are possible. Really? Possible? Super confusing, right? Okay, to help clarify, I found an interesting blog called A New Shade of Green, where Sherry Liskarten discusses different forms of geoengineering. Google that for more info. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevadenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Hagen sacrificed his big-money consultant earning capability to bring together his strong passion for solving energy demand challenges and the associated economic, geopolitical, and environmental problems to his background in mechanical engineering and information infrastructure integration skills with the goal of disrupting the energy market with innovative solutions and helping to mitigate climate change. Thank you.